Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the CAPPC Podcast Academy, where we discuss key mental health care strategies and issues for primary care. This is a project of CAPPC, which is a component of Project Teach, supported by the New York State Office of Mental Health. This is your host, Saras Sangupta, from the CAPPC team. Today's topic is how we can talk with parents about um, anxiety and anxious behaviors um, in the early stages uh, and how we can help uh, give them some of that guidance uh, earlier on. Um, remember to find out more about this and other important primary care mental health topics, visit our website at www.capppcny.org. And here with us today, a real pleasure again, uh, Dr. Jim Wallace, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Univers University of Rochester, um, and one of our you know, stellar educators within the CAPPC program. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Oh, Wallace. I'm glad to be here. Uh, as always, uh, just remember, uh, keep in mind, this discussion does not constitute uh, specific medical advice and is really meant to be more for education and guidance. So, uh, Dr. Wallace, let's jump into it. Uh, you know, when we're thinking about anxiety in kids, what does it even look like in those early stages? Well, one of the big challenges with anxiety is that it can be pretty invisible. Uh, and you have to almost have your sensors out and to be thinking about it in order to notice. Uh, in a primary care setting, you might notice that a child comes in with a family member for headaches or stomach aches, some physical signs, uh, and that would be a clue to ask about, you know, whether that seems to be an anxiety-related symptom or not. Uh, often, once you have your feelers out and you do get a sense that, okay, this might be anxiety, then for me, I, that triggers a bunch of other questions. Um, so the other thing that might happen, sometimes a parent would present with difficulty with separation, dropping a child off at school, right. unable to stay at grandma's house, something like that. And so then I would ask about other separation moments like tucking them in bed, mm. you know, and other transitions like that. So usually one little symptom, if you're vigilant, um, might trigger curiosity around that, that area. And you have to ask follow-up questions. And you'll see it pop up in some other domains or other environments. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. I mean, some children have very specialized anxiety, but probably the majority have anxiety that, that hits on different parts of their life. So right. they, they have some physical symptoms. They have some separation problems. They have some cognitive distortions. Yeah. They get the whole package. Right, um, right, right. And when we think about, you know, you know, depression or other things maybe coming on a little bit sort of later on more often maybe in adolescence anxiety as I understand it it can come up even earlier well yeah that's true um, first of all natural anxiety developmental anxiety is part of all of our lives when you have to go through big developmental steps right so you know whenever you have a, a part of your life it can go a little haywire so you know everybody has to struggle with going off to school for kindergarten sure and then sometimes for kids that triggers their anxiety reaction right have to kind of change that orientation from family towards school and social. Yeah, things. big step. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, um, you know, how do we think about, you know, let's say you've got your, you know, orange flags that are sort of up, you know, how do we think about, you know, what else do we need to find out here? How do we kind of assess it or flesh out that assessment of that anxiety? Well, two or three things, I think, help to paint a, a more complete picture. Um, one thing might be to you know, if you know the family, then sometimes you, you already realize that this kind of a problem runs in families, either with the parents or siblings or aunts, uncles, cousins. And family history. Yeah, yeah. so it, it runs fairly thick in the family. Yeah. 
Um, so that can give you some clues. If, if no one's been officially diagnosed, sometimes I'll ask if, if this child reminds them of somebody, mm. does it remind you of your aunt or your sure. cousin or something, and, right. and that's enough to trigger a memory for people about other people who struggle with anxiety, because it's yeah. often not diagnosed. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, once I've asked the questions that I have in my own mind, then I think a, a screening tool is pretty handy. So. Um, we use we usually suggest the Scared, which is available on our website. Right. Um, and there is a child self report um, for older kids or a parent report. Yeah. Um, and that information, you know, can be very helpful. It asks about anxiety in like you know I don't know forty one different ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you although it's not that long, it's only back and forth <laughs> of one page. Yeah. Two it's, pages, it, right. Yeah. It's it's fairly quick, but yeah. it's a number of questions. Right. Because anxiety is so complex, mm-hmm. um, and it. And it kind of fleshes that out so you don't have to remember all the questions. Right. Um, it helps screen for that. And so, you know, you know, so you've kind of turned up this anxiety issue, you know, earlier on. You've kind of, you know, fleshed out your assessment a little bit, maybe use one of these screening tools to get a better sense of what's going on. But, you know, uh, you know, the devil's advocate in me is saying, you know, you know, it's early on, kids get anxious. You know, what's the big deal? I mean, uh, why can't we just sort of see if they'll grow out of it? Right. Well, and of course, lots of people try to do that. Yeah. Um, and people do change over time. One of the my concerns is that if you have some strategies, fairly small strategies when children are young, and you apply them on a regular basis, um, that can help the child build resilience and strength and, and the ability to push through their anxiety. And it, it doesn't take any dramatic or medical interventions to speak of. Okay. If you wait until the symptoms escalate over time and become more entrenched as a style of thinking and relating to the world, I think you have a bigger mountain to climb. Um, right. So I like to intervene early and, you know, in kind of more naturalistic ways if yeah. possible. So we're not necessarily talking about, you know, you know, doing cognitive behavioral therapy or meds. We're really talking about some guidance and things that parents can do early on to help shape how their child is developing. That's right. And it's a, it's a big challenge. It's a big switch for families. Um, so part of trying to understand anxiety is to um, not only get a sense of the symptoms, but then get a sense of how the symptoms trigger behavior and relationships within the family system. Mm. Um, so all families relate slightly differently. There are some families that are very uh, kind of bold and um, assertive and are going to push and nudge the child to face their fears and take that on. There are many families where they're they're going to feel and see a child in distress and they're going to want to reduce the distress. So they're going mm-hmm. to want to accommodate and protect and, um, and soften the world for the child that they consider somewhat fragile. Right. And so it's good to address that and get familiar with how they react to anxiety. And that's the big switch where you somehow have to get them comfortable with the idea that their child needs to become brave and strong and not that they need to feel safe all the time. Um, and that's a, that's a tough stretch for families. I can imagine a lot of parents can struggle with that message, yeah. you know, especially maybe some somewhat anxious parents. Sure, because again, it runs in families and, and anxiety is contagious. So mm-hmm. if you try to get your anxious kindergartner on the bus and they look at you with those big puppy dog eyes and, and they're clinging <laughs> to you, and you can feel their anxiety. It's very hard to stand firm, yeah. um, and it's and it's easy to feel that would be cruel, and the right thing to do would be to get them off the bus and take them home. Right. Um, so 
it's it's a big stretch for some families to kind of understand and then find the strength to to be the nudge to be someone who kind of makes their anxious kid face their fears right so how, how do you you know think about operationalizing that for parents in terms of those day-to-day you know strategies in terms of helping them to do more of that nudging well it's it's challenging I've tried to do it a thousand different ways right yeah, um, yeah. and one <laughs> One thing I've done more recently is I, I tend to write, I do a lot of dry, diagrams for people. Okay. And so I have a diagram that I draw for families where on one end is a 100% accommodation. You know, this is don't make them do anything they don't want to do. You're okay. just trying to reduce distress and make them like all lovey-dovey. Okay. Um, <clears throat> on the other end is very strict accountability, rigid rules. Uh, basically boot camp okay. um, where you have to do everything right now. I don't want to hear about it. Right? Okay. okay. Um, Super accommodator to boot camp. That's right, the right, spectrum. Okay. right. I tell people is like, so your child's needs at any given moment are a moving target. They're somewhere on that spectrum. And you're always trying to figure out how much should I accommodate them and how much should I nudge them. Uh, you know, you're trying to do that. And that's not a simple thing to figure out. Right. Because depending on their day and the situation and your relationship with them, you know, and your style and all that kind of stuff, you might have more ability to push a child to do something more difficult, um, whereas in another moment, another situation, they wouldn't have much ability to do that without falling apart. So, right. Um, right. So, you're, so you have this child who's a moving target across here. Right. Um, and that's just the beginning. Okay. Um, so then the next, What's next? <laughs> the next step is where the adults are. Um, so if you take all, you know, if you take 100 adults, I do this sometimes with five adults, uh-huh. um, and stand them, you know, next to each other and say, listen, place yourself across that same spectrum. You might naturally be an accommodating person. You might be conflict avoidant. You know, you don't like people to be upset. Mm-hmm. And so you naturally would tend towards that end of that spectrum, right. whereas somebody else is more strict and more... Uh, you know, a football coachish. You know, okay, yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> likes to like parent with a whistle around their neck or something. <laughs> like that. Um, and so, you know, that would be a big, pretty big difference. And everybody's somewhere on there. We, you know, the idea is that it's okay. You got to be someplace on the spectrum, right? And but the challenge is once you place yourself on that spectrum, then if you place the child on the spectrum, it's rare that the child is perfectly aligned with any of the adults. Right. Um, They're going to be somewhere in between. Right. So they might be closer to some adults than others. So those adults would not have to stretch their style much Mm -hmm. in order to interact in in the best possible way with that child. Where other people that are farther away from that child, that that child's moment, are going to have to really stretch themselves and either to, to accommodate much more than they're comfortable with or to be much firmer than they're comfortable with. So you're, you're always trying to organize the adult effort around the child. Right. Um, <clears throat> and that's not so easy to do. Yeah, so you, you have you know, the, the child between potential sort of caregiver parental styles um, and you know, the, the caregiver that's farther away may have to accommodate more. But then also there's a really important concept I think you brought up, which is that the child can have varying needs throughout development, throughout, throughout the day maybe even. Yeah, right, right. In they're, terms of what? They're a moving target. It's, yeah. It takes some skills. Yeah. It, um, um, now the last piece of this puzzle, which is a challenge, is that um, if you take the same spectrum and the same adults and you, you have one adult interacting with this child, right? So you have the strict adult right. who interacts with the child and is being strict with mm-hmm. high expectations, you know, 
kind of man up and go in and take your quiz. Right, you know, you right, don't right. stop whining and get up off the floor, whatever. Um, <laughs> and then so, and the child's reacting to that. Well, down the hall, there might be someone who's on the other end of the spectrum who witnesses that interaction. Mm. So that person feels bad, right? Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. don't like conflict. They don't like distress. And so they might actually move farther away from this so they become more nurturing and more accommodating. And so maybe those two adults weren't too far apart at the beginning, uh, but now they're getting polarized. They're more getting more. Further, uh. further and further apart. And the other, the, the troubling thing is they, they're getting more focused on the other adults instead of on the child. They've lost the child in okay. all this. Okay. And you see this sort of polarization between, uh, sometimes between one parent and the other parent. You see it between a parent and a pediatrician. You'll mm-hmm. see it between... A, a school teacher and a school administrator. Right. So if you take any two adults, there's going to be some differences. And what I work really hard with people to do is try not to get polarized by the other adults. Mm-hmm. Try to stay focused on the needs of the child. Okay. Um, okay. And it helps um, because again, if people know where they fall and what their tendencies are, they can all they can kind of joke about it usually. And, and here I go and again. Say, yeah. yeah. The, and. Uh, and know that there are certain moments of parenting or raising or interacting with that child that are going to be easy because it's kind of right in your wheelhouse. And there are going to be other moments when it's not so easy, right. when it's going to be really distressing. Right. Right. So making sure that they are aware of that kind of tendency for themselves to kind of get polarized. Um, but I really like that idea of keeping it focused on the kid. That sort of seems like a way to kind of get back to, hey, what's our, what are our goals here? Right, right. Uh, why are we kind of having these sets of conversations? And, then, and it strikes me, too, that, that it can be a good framework then to have more useful sort of actual communication right. about what's going on, not talking past each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, the other, the overall tendency has to, for most kids, in order to function better. So the, so the problem with being accommodating, 100% accommodating, is you decrease distress and tantruming outbursts and stuff like that, but you also decrease performance and functioning. Right. right. So if you overly accommodate somebody, they don't perform up to their potential, mm-hmm. and they're not getting stronger. They're sitting in a, in a kind of a weaker spot. So your tendency over time is like you want to move from that child from the accommodation end of the spectrum towards the the more the higher expectations because you want them to get stronger right. and you want them to function better and you want them to have the strength that it takes to be an adult in this world. Absolutely. And so you can't just, if you live in this accommodation end all the time in order to avoid any distress, right. the price you're going to pay is functioning. Right. Um, and right. Right. that's a high price. And Absolutely. so it's what, you, what I try to do is get everybody kind of roughly on the same page, but everybody understanding that we have to uh, lean towards raising the bar. Right. Um, and right. Right. and that's a and once in a while that will overwhelm the child mm-hmm. and they'll have a meltdown. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't consider that a disaster. I no. consider that if you never have an outburst or a meltdown or a distress kind of signal, then you probably aren't experimenting and you probably aren't raising the bar enough. Enough. Um, enough. So I like sometimes families will be very upset if the child has a has a meltdown in school, and will say what happened to make the meltdown. I try to reinforce if that hardly ever happens it just tells me that they're experimenting with that edge right and they're trying to find out what the child can tolerate and that's a good thing it's getting them more uh, towards functioning and yeah. resiliency yeah right and it's not a disaster it's yeah. you know it's a momentary setback 
Absolutely, which yeah. are critical, yeah. actually. You know, and, and I think the the underlying sort of piece here too is that these this sort of uh, push and pull between accommodation and self efficacy, you know, mm-hmm. that's happening in this really critical developmental time period, right. right? Where you need to be learning how to engage with your peers, mastering academic skills, you know, figuring out you know those key developmental tasks. Mm-hmm. And so I think the timing of this is, is really very important as well. Right. And, and it, it, require, it asks of the child that they be able to do non-preferred activities right. when they don't want to, which right. we all have to learn how to do that. Yeah. And, it learns, and you have to learn how to regulate your emotions. So you're going to have to face adversity. You're going to have to face some frustration, mm-hmm. disappointment. Um, and, you know, again, those things in the right doses help you to get stronger. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you avoid them totally, yeah. then you, you don't really have the skills and the right. strengths you need to go forward. You know, and I, I think that could, you know, this is really interesting, that could, that could be a powerful message, maybe especially to an anxious parent, that sort of gives them some freedom to allow their children to have tough times. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when they hear about a tough day at school, they don't necessarily have to feel the rush to act. Um, they can have right. that sort of sense. Look, I understand that that's happening, and yet it's also a good thing for them for for you know some periods of time. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think we, if you go through bumps, small bumps when you're young, you learn a lot of lessons. Um, you don't want to go through your first crises when you are 19, right? And, and you try to, to launch. You yeah. try to move into a freshman dorm, and you don't have a lot of tolerance for different people or different routines, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's going to be really stressful for Absolutely. you. So. Yeah. Every treatment for anxiety requires exposure. You yeah. have to you have to do it. It's critical. You have to go right. out there. And you can't protect people from that. So so you can teach people about it, you can teach them coping skills, but eventually you have to give them assignments to face their right. fears. Right. Um, Even if they're creative and they're building out, you know, into levels yeah. of exposure, but the exposure is such a key aspect. Yeah, it's it's just part of it every time. So mm-hmm. you can't can you say, can you make this better without doing that nasty stuff? Um, it's like no, you have really. To, <laughs> no, you can't. You just. It's like, can I get stronger without lifting weights? And it's like no, it's gonna be hard. Yeah. <laughs> can I get to run a marathon without actually running to the mailbox and back? You know, probably not. Probably not. Um, right. But the good thing is that people really can get stronger, um, and and emotional resilience and tolerance and frustration tolerance. Those are those are also skills and strengths that people can actually get better at. And yeah. so you're not locked into where you are when you're seven. Um, and you can get a lot stronger. Absolutely. So in general, how do you think that uh, primary care clinicians can support families in this process? Uh, what's the best advice we can give them? Well, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, you have to keep anxiety the possibility of anxiety in the back of your mind all the time, all day long. Um, And because anxiety is at least as as, uh, common as ADHD. And if you ask pediatricians how many times a week do you have to deal with someone with anxiety versus someone with ADHD, they'd probably, they hardly ever notice the anxious kids. Mm. And the anxious kids are quiet and they're not getting suspended from school and Mm -hmm. they're not, you know, they're doing their homework and they're doing all this stuff. So it's not an obvious sort of problem. So I think just to be sensitive to it and understand that it can create a lot of impairment and a lot of distress, even though it's it's a subtle kind of impairment and right, distress and right. it's not as overt as ADHD might be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you have to be sensitive to it. And then when you when you bump into it, there's something suggests that you have to have a, 
a couple follow-up questions that you get familiar with to to explore a little bit more about this headache or about this problem tucking in at night mm-hmm. or this problem going over to grandma's house and and be comfortable saying well that is you're describing a separation issue I'll ask you a couple other separation problems and then as soon as you hit two or three things that seem like anxiety I think I'd be pretty quick to get out a screening tool at uh-huh. that point um, and instead of trying to think of your own 41 questions right. I think it, yeah, it's, use these validated yeah ones use that. the validated ones that will give you some solid information to work from yeah. and and also I think if you notice it very early parents sometimes just pushing back and just say you know even if you see a toddler who, mm-hmm. who temperamentally is very shy if you tell the parents, look, you know, they will do better if you drag them out from behind your leg <laughs> and, you know, and, and have them, you know, shake people's hands and, and speak for themselves. Um, they can order for themselves at McDonald's. They, right. Can, right. they can. And they look at you like, don't make me do this. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So you have to understand that that's a good thing that mm-hmm. you're doing mm-hmm. and that you're helping them being a strong, functional person. You're not being mean, even though they're going to tell you you're being mean. Right. So you can't. And I think doing that in that moment is, in fact, role modeling for the parent exactly what they need to do. Right. right? So you're asking the parent to do the hard thing in exposing their child to you. Right. <laughs> right. And in that, you're also showing them that you can do this and right. you can help your child get exposed to things that are difficult for them. Right. And be very supportive of the parent who takes that step. Right. Um, yes, so absolutely. if they actually, they look at you kind of funny, but they do, you know, yeah. bring Junior out from behind their leg yeah. and set him on their lap and you do say yeah. hello to them and shake their hand, you say, that, isn't that great? You yeah. Know? Yeah. One wonderful thing about anxiety is if you master something that used to make you anxious, mm-hmm. it feels really good. Yeah. So anxiety a has foe its is vanquished. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It has its built-in reinforcers. So if you jump off that high dive, you know yeah. you can stare at it for a day. I, you know, I used to go to the wine, stare at the high dive, and <laughs> fantasize about jumping off of it. But I was terrified of it. And finally, one day, my cousin talked me into climbing off that ladder yeah. and standing up there. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, I could die up here. It feels terrible. <laughs> um, but then I jumped off, and then you couldn't get me out of that line. Right. You know, so right. it's just, it was right. so exhilarating yeah. and so exciting to, to master something yeah. that had terrified me. It was, yeah. it was great. And I think that's our goal, right? To have more and more kids have more and more stories like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to be able to master that fear and be able to conquer the world after that. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much, Dr. Wallace. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been fun. Yeah, great. Um, you know, and I think you, you shared with us, you know, some thoughts on this really important and challenging issue. And, and I hope this is uh, useful to our listeners to think about ways that you can approach, you know, those initial discussions about anxiety and anxious behaviors, you know, really before you get to those conversations about therapy, medication, those other kinds of things, just some real, you know, uh, down to, you know, earth day-to-day advice to parents. Um, so thank you all to everyone who's listening. Uh, you've been listening to the CAPPC Podcast Academy. If interested, check out the website to learn more about the program. Um, and join us again next time.